This season of Desert Island Dishes is sponsored by Cook's Matches. Cook's Matches have been the mainstay of British kitchens for over 40 years and remain the match for both cooks and chefs to use in the kitchen. I just find there to be something so wonderfully comforting about those iconic yellow boxes. Perhaps it's because I grew up with them always being in my parents' kitchen, or perhaps it's because they were always there in the background of every birthday cake being lit. <laughs> no kitchen should be complete without a trusty box of these matches. They are just the easiest and most eco-friendly way to light everything from stoves and barbecues to candles. You may think that all matches are created equal, but surely we've all gone through a box of matches where they all break before you can even get one to strike. And that simply doesn't happen with Cook's Matches. And that's why they've been the go-to kitchen match for so long. As an added bonus, each box now features a recipe from the one and only Tom Kerridge. To find out more, head to the website www.cooksmatches.co.uk and you can find them on social media with the handle at Cooks Matches. Thank you very much to Cooks Matches. Hi, I'm Margie Namora, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. We're back, which is very exciting for me, at least. <laughs> and I wanted to thank you all so much for the amazing messages you've sent me over the last few months and for the reviews that you've been leaving. I know I probably say it a bit too often, but it really does mean a lot to know that so many of you are enjoying listening to Desert Island Dishes. So thank you. We have some brilliant guests lined up for this season, and I'm just excited to be able to share them with you finally. It has been a while, <laughs> and a lot of things have been going on behind the scenes, but I will spare you my waffling. You've all been very patient. So without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Michelle Rue. Michelle is a legendary figure in the world of food. He's a chef and restaurateur. He's the Michelin-starred owner of London's iconic Le Gavroche, founded by his father and uncle in the 1960s. Celebrating over 50 years in business, the Rues have built a gastronomic dynasty. His grandparents and their parents before them were charcutiers, so food has always been a family affair. And perhaps it was inevitable that Michel would fall in love with food as his family had done before him. The story goes that he was practically born in a kitchen when his mother went into labour during service at his father's restaurant. Beyond restaurants, you may well know Michel from his extensive television career. He was a judge on MasterChef The Professionals for six years, has been a regular on Saturday Kitchen and has fronted BBC Two's Food and Drink. His latest project is his brilliant new series for Food Network called Michel Roux's French Country Cooking. He has said, a lot of chefs give up the restaurants in favour of the TV, but that's not for me. Food for me is not a job. It's a life. Welcome, Michel. Thank you. What a lovely intro. <laughs> Such a pleasure to have you on Desert Island Dishes. I I was reading a, a question that you sometimes ask to break the ice if you have a meeting with someone that you don't know. And I'm going to turn the tables on you now and ask you your own question. Michelle, what is your favourite flavour of ice cream? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, that's it. But I, I really do like that question. And, and I do often um, you know, ask that just to kind of break the ice, because I think you can tell a lot uh, from uh, your choice of favorite ice cream. And I also think um, it, it can be a food memory, which is <laughs> part of my answer. Um, <laughs> my favorite ice cream is vanilla ice cream. Um, and I suppose you could read into that because I, uh, I my love of classic, uh, classic food, classic combinations, um, and you can't get much more classic than a vanilla ice cream. But it also is a great food memory for me because it is one of my first, very first food memories. Um, and I remember it, I was probably about six at the time, and dad was making vanilla ice cream, but not in one of these sort of you know, uh, electronic ice cream makers or, or anything like that, because it was going back to the 60s. And it was just a wooden pail with crushed ice and salt to bring the, bring the temperature down. And then a metal cylinder or an iron cylinder with uh, paddles inside, wooden paddles and a, and a crankshaft and wheel and a handle. Um, and so he poured uh, the uh, creme anglaise or custard cream into the cylinder and then churned it by hand. And I gave him a hand or at least in my eyes as a as a young, you know, sort of six, seven year old. It was my vanilla ice cream. I was making it. And uh, so helping him churn that and a very sore arm. And about 15 minutes later, the reward was to take the lid off this uh, off the lid of the, uh, the cylinder and to have that first spoonful of freshly churned vanilla ice cream. Oh, I feel like you've just transported <laughs> me there. It sounds amazing. It sounds like you were very helpful, I'm sure, in that process of making it. <laughs> So you were born here in the UK, which I think always takes people a bit by surprise, but you grew up in Kent and I've read lovely stories mm. of holidays to Scotland and afternoons spent fishing and foraging. So I'm really excited to hear your first desert island dish. And that is the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Well, now, obviously vanilla ice cream, of course, uh, but I would say um, millefeuille, or millefeuille uh, is... Uh, puff pastry, layers of puff pastry, super, super light and crispy. Uh, and then a, a, a creme pâtissière, which is a, a cust thickened custard cream. Uh, and then the classic one is glazed with fondant and feathered with chocolate fondant. So it looks beautiful, looks classic, looks so, so French, uh, so Parisian in many respects. And um, it was a treat as a child to, to eat that. It was a treat uh, when dad used to make it. Uh, and I would get the offshoots, the little bits at the end. Um, but it was also the first uh, pastry that I made as an apprentice, because I was an apprentice pastry chef. Uh, and it made the cut um, and was served to paying guests. So millefeuille is, is something special to me. Yeah, I mean, that must have been such an exciting moment, making something and then people actually paying you for it. Mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> You've said that you think the moment you realised you wanted to be a chef was when you were playing under the table at a kitchen when you were maybe sort of two or three years old and your father gave you a piece of puff pastry to play with instead of Play-Doh. Is that true? That, that's true. That's probably where my love of, of puff pastry and milfoy comes from. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is quite a good idea because they make Play-Doh salty on purpose, don't they? But I would much have preferred <laughs> puff pastry to play with. <laughs> And people might assume that your father or your family sort of coerced you into this life of cooking. But in reality, I, I heard that your father say he was actually rather shocked when you told him that's what you wanted to do. 
<laughs> yes, he was rather shocked. I mean, deep down, I suppose he 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 you know he wanted that, and he would have you know he he he, he didn't coerce me at all, uh, and, and certainly didn't go out of his way to to sort of persuade me to be be a chef. Um, but no, um, he was pleasantly surprised and jumped up and down uh, like like a madman when when I told him no, I want to be a uh, you know a chef. That's so uh, nice. Uh, yeah. And now your daughter, Emily, is a chef following in your mm. footsteps. So obviously, ultimately, all anyone wants is for their children to be happy. But it must be a lovely sort of feeling to have your child have the same passion as you. That must feel very special. Yes, it does. And, and you know, I think I'm blessed uh, that um, I have a daughter that knew from a very young age what she wanted to do, um, passionate about food, uh, passionate about cooking. Um, and, um, you know, not saying, oh, I don't know at the age of 16 or 18 what I want to do. Maybe I'll do go a gap year or go into further education or do this or that. No, she had single minded. You know, she had uh, at 18. She wanted she knew she wanted to do and two years here, a year here, a year here. She had it all mapped out. So, you know, that, that is wonderful. You know, as, as a parent, I couldn't ask more. And she absolutely adores what she does. I'm extremely proud of her. Um, and uh, she she doesn't see it like me. Doesn't see it as a job. She sees it as a you know a passion and something that she loves doing. Oh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> so, having set your sights on on being a chef, and from all accounts not loving school, you left school at sixteen and headed to France mm. for the first of several challenging apprenticeships. Your father's advice to you was to initially train as a pastry chef, which is said to be the best way. Why Why is that such a great way to start a professional career in cooking? Yeah, I think it's uh, the, the rigours and the discipline of uh, being a pastry chef. Um, you know, there are, there are recipes to follow and you, you can't be a gram out. You have to be, you know, very precise um, uh, because otherwise, you know, the, the science of patisserie will not work. Um, whereas cooking can be more free flow and taste, uh, you can add a pinch of salt, a drop of acidity, this and that, you know, can play with that. Um, and, uh, whereas, uh, pastry is a science. So it, if you start off with that, you've got that under your belt and you've got that experience, um, and then you can progress. So I think it's very important. And many chefs, many, many chefs that I know, um, regret not having the, the skill the core skills of pastry, uh, un, you know, under their belt um, until, you know, and, and when, when, you're, when you're a bit older, you get set in your ways and, and it's difficult to go back into pastry. Ah, that's so interesting. Yeah, because I was going to ask, do you, is it possible to sort of become a chef at the top of your game if you don't have that understanding of, of pastry? Mm. Is that possible? It, it is possible, but I think it's very difficult um, if you haven't got that. And uh, I, I think to be a great uh, a great chef and to uh, a, a great head chef, even you must understand every department um, in the kitchen, and that includes pastry. It's time to talk about the second desert island dish now, and that is the first dish you learnt to cook. <gasps> <laughs> My word, first dish I learned to cook. That, that's actually quite a difficult uh, one to answer because um, I, I, you know, as a child, um, I remember my, well, dad wasn't very there, wasn't there very often from the age of seven because he opened the restaurant in 1967. And so, uh, you know, kind, kind of was absent and working all hours. 
so mum was cooking a lot of, at home and uh, she's a great cook, uh, still is a fabulous cook. Um, so one of, one of the dishes that, um, that I do remember cooking or helping her cook was the great French uh, gratin dauphinois. Um, so the classic you know, sliced potatoes uh, and you rub the dish with a bit of garlic uh, and cr- lots of cream, double cream and potatoes uh, and slow cook it in the oven. Um, and that was a treat. That was very often um, you know, the meal. It was gratin dauphinois and, and some salad. And that was the, that was the meal. Um, so, I, yeah, I love gratin dauphinois. And conversely, later, uh, later in life, um, my wife, uh, wife-to-be, cooked me <gasps> a gratin dauphinois. That was very brave. Uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, I must say, uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, it is one of my favourite, favourite dishes. And I, I, as I said, it, for me, it's a meal in itself, a beautiful dish of perfectly cooked potatoes and cream with just a hint of garlic and the perfect seasoning needs nothing else. I completely agree. It's it's one of my absolute favourites. But I, I think that's very brave, dating someone like you to, to cook one of your favourite dishes. Is she an amazing cook? <laughs> uh, she is an amazing lady. <laughs> Uh, and uh, yeah, her, she makes a mean gratin dauphinois, that's for sure. <laughs> she became your wife, so it sounds like she did an excellent <laughs> You took over Le Gavroche when you were 33, which meant you spent a good 17 years learning your trade with many years spent in France, mm. so a stint in, in Hong Kong. Of all of those experiences, I believe you've said that working for Alain Chapelle was the most influential. Tell us a little bit about that. Mm. What was so inspiring about your time there? Yes. So, I mean, that, that was in uh, Lyon or just outside of Lyon. And uh, I spent two years there. absolutely adore Lyon as a, as a destination, as a city. Uh, in fact, I probably prefer Lyon to, to Paris or any other city in France. Um, it is a gastronomic capital. There's so much going on in Lyon food-wise. Uh, but Alain Chapelle was a, was a genius uh, of a chef. Um, and But um, he... he championed local ingredients used a lot of local ingredients uh and uh but he had a little always had a little twist and he was one of the first chefs back in the uh, french chefs back in the uh 70s uh, and early 80s to travel travel the world so he he went to china went to uh, japan which was unheard of you know and came back with these wonderful ingredients and wonderful ideas so he was very innovative um but uh yeah, it, it was an extremely, I think, in, you know, enriching uh, experience to work for at the great Alain Chapelle. And, of course, to be able to go to Lyon and enjoy the local food. Uh, and one of which is, is one of my you know, all-time favourite, favourite Lyonnais-style uh, dishes, uh, and that is andouillette. I don't know if you've come across andouillette before. It's, no, I don't think I have. Well, it's it's not for the uninitiated. It's a it's a tripe sausage. Okay, <laughs> uh, and and it is a bit farmyardy. Okay, put it that way. <laughs> it, it can be a little bit off-putting, but I absolutely <laughs> adore it. And um, there's one particular charcutier in Lyon which makes it well. Well, actually, not well. I think he makes the best, and it's Bobos B O B O S E, and he makes these particular. Andouillette sausages uh, that that are just mind-blowingly good. They have such great flavour. And uh, Monsieur Chapelle uh, used to buy them from uh, Monsieur Bobos, uh, and we used to get them as a treat for staff 
uh, food every now and then. Uh, and yeah, they're just so mind-blowingly good. They, they just remind me of that era and that time that I spent there. There aren't many people that, <laughs> that but I'm going to take your word that, um, <laughs> that that's a particularly delicious thing to eat. And that actually brings me on to something that I read where I came across an interview where you're talking about the strangest food that you've eaten and your answers. Michelle, your answers were kangaroo, crocodile, snake and puffin. You've eaten a puffin? Well, not a whole one. <laughs> <laughs> but you did say that the most challenging thing you've ever eaten was actually fermented shark. And I feel like when you use the word challenging, you were being quite polite. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's um, yeah, Scan a Scandinavian dish where the, uh, the shark is left to um, uh, putrefy and ferment. Uh, and actually, andouillette is tame in comparison. <laughs> and you need... <laughs> You need a glass of Aquavit to wash it down. <laughs> I, I think any dish where you have to use the word putrefy is a great start, is it? <laughs> no, it, I mean, it, you open the, um, the, 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 the can or the, the dish that it's been preserved in. Well, preserved is a... Is, is, <laughs> uh, and uh, you, you open that outside in, in the fresh air because the, the smell is very sulfurous. And uh, yeah, oh. it, it, it's... It, <laughs> It's not great. Well, it's not to my not to my taste anyway. But yeah, in comparison, kangaroo steak and uh, crocodile steaks were were pretty tame uh, and easy to eat. <laughs> so your whole family is in the same industry, and you've all got that rude trait of working really hard. You've said we're not afraid of hard work. Mm. We put the hours in. We're sticklers for trying to achieve, and we demand the best. Mm. And Grandma Rue probably has a lot to do with that. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about Grandma Rue? Because she sounds like a formidable lady. <laughs> she certainly was. Uh, Germaine was was quite something. But uh, I, I think she had to be because uh, she was uh, on her own to bring up uh, dad, uncle, uh, and uh, and two aunties. So, you know, a family of four on her own. Uh, and uh, during, well, during the war and, and after immediately after the war, so very, very tough, uh, you know, earning a living to, to bring up her you know, children uh, and, and finding food uh, to, you know, to grace the table for four hungry kids. Uh, so she was a, a formidable lady, uh, incredible stamina um, and, uh, and loved her food. And uh, I, when I was first an apprentice at the age of 16, I lived on her couch uh, for the first few months of my apprenticeship until I, I found some uh, some gigs to live in um, and yeah she she was quite some lady but um, hilarious at times absolutely hilarious she she had little little uh, little things that I will never ever forget such as at, at four o'clock in the afternoon she would always get a piece of stale bread there was always stale bread in the house because she would never throw anything any food item away which was you know obviously from living through the uh, hardship of the war years. So she would put a piece of stale bread in a glass um, and uh, a splash of wine, red wine, and a cube of sugar. And so, wow. yeah, and, and mush it up. In fact, it would be more than a splash. It would be quite a, quite a generous glug of wine. <laughs> um, and, it would, and she would mush it all up and it would make this sort of purpley kind of puce colour of, of you know, sort of, 
compote. Um, and of course, the bread, the, you know, the significance, I think, was, was twofold. The significance was religious, obviously, bread and wine. Um, but it was also the significance of uh, hardship of never throwing anything away, such as, you know, stale bread, um, wine to bring joy and happiness and, and plenty of you know, the sort of uh, rejoicing. And and sugar being something that was rationed during the war and uh, that she could now readily get. Uh, so the three brought together a little glass and she swore by it every afternoon and said it was her little pick-me-up uh, and her little moment uh, of, of rejoicing. And she would mush this up in, in her glass with a spoon uh, and gobble it down with joy at four o'clock. That is quite a signature dish. You <laughs> <laughs> have a little taste, and I wasn't too, I wasn't too impressed by it. But she swore by it uh, and lived to a ripe old age. And uh, yes, yeah, she said it did her good. Uh, yeah, particularly for the woman who had become this matriarch of this sort of gastronomical mm. dynasty. I think that, that's amazing. <laughs> and so I'm curious that during all of these years that you were doing all of this training and getting all of these different amazing experiences, did you always know that ultimately one day you would take over Le Gavroche? Was that always the plan or? No, it wasn't really, you know, in my mind, it wasn't, it wasn't the plan. Um, but the, the plan was obviously to learn as much as I could and to, to, to you know, um, to work. Um, that, that was that was the that was the thing at the age of sixteen when I was school leaving age. Um, it was the desire to work, the desire to earn a living, and to, to learn a craft, a profession. Um, I didn't want to go into further education. Um, it just wasn't me. I wanted. I wanted to be an adult. I wanted to get out there, and, and you know uh, that, that that was that was the desire. Um, and then whilst I was learning uh, my craft and, and going from one place to another, and, you know, really, really sort of loving everything I was doing, um, it, it certainly wasn't in my mind uh, to take over the business from my father. Uh, far from it. But it, it was still that un, you know, the desire to keep learning and to. to keep you know working as a professional chef um and uh, but but when it did happen it almost happened by by surprise or not by surprise by accident um my father said well can, can you come back to gavroche and fill in for the pastry chef that was on holiday so yeah i went and filled in for i think it was three weeks um and then the head chef went on holiday for a few weeks um and then the rest is history i was trapped <laughs> oh, that's amazing i didn't know that that was how it happened that's like kind of the best way for it to happen isn't it uh, yeah <laughs> let's talk about that a little bit more in a second but for now let's talk about the third desert island dish and that is the best dish you've ever eaten oh gosh so many so so many dishes um that have moved me that have that are that are you know moments in time that are special uh because i you know it, it doesn't matter how much I, I believe it it doesn't matter how much you pay for a dish um and it and it doesn't matter how much you know you pay for the meal uh it's the moment in time that is important and who you're sharing this with uh that, that is probably as important um gosh there are so, you know, I'm very fortunate. There are so many that I could choose, but I'm, I'm going to choose. Okay, I'm going to choose one that's actually relatively recent, um, and it was um, a meal shared with my wife, as is most 
memorable meals um, in my life. In fact, I would say all of them is shared with somebody uh, very close to me. Uh, and, and this was with my wife. And it was a, a very, very high-end Japanese restaurant in London. It's uh, The restaurant is called Endo uh, at the Rotunda. And I've been following this chef for, for many years, and he is, he is quite some character. Very, I mean, unbelievably passionate about his food and provenance of his food. And we, it's a counter, so you eat at the counter, and there's only you know, 12, 14 spaces, so it's very difficult to get a, get a seat. But I love this chef's food. And we had the tasting menu, and it got to the stage of a nigiri with a really very, very lightly poached oyster. And I love oysters, I love Japanese food, and I love nigiri. Um, but this particular nigiri, when it landed in my mouth, almost moved me to tears. The flavor the, the, of this oyster, the texture of the rice, the temperature of the rice as well, was just mind-blowingly good. And we looked at each other, uh, my wife and I, and we just went, Oh, my word. And I, I, I kid you not, tears welling. Uh, the, 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 it was just that perfect, perfect. We, we just didn't want it to end. We just did not want this mouthful of food to end. Um, and there are moments like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, you have to savor them and just enjoy them. Uh, and I dare say if I go back there and he has oyster nigger, maybe it won't be as good. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it was just incredible, incredible. I mean, as a chef, that's pretty much all you can ask for, isn't it? Moving someone to tears with your food. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and you know, it, it, it does happen. And I must say, it's the first time it's ever really happened that I, I felt welling up. Uh, over food, and, and I've been very fortunate to eat, you know, in some fantastic places. And I, I've seen guests at at Le Gavroche, where I cook, you know, um, moved to tears. And I've always wondered, will I ever be moved to tears uh, over food? Um, and it happened at that that occasion. The oyster nigiri uh, at Endo was just mind blowing. Oh, that sounds absolutely incredible. <laughs> So after nearly two decades of training, you did eventually take over from your father at Le Gavroche. And I mean, I know that you've just described the way that it happened and it was sort of actually quite organic. Mm. Ultimately, it must have been incredibly daunting. The idea of maintaining this amazing legacy, but also trying to put your own stamp on it. Mm. Not easy. No. Um, <laughs> gosh, not easy. And uh, yeah. I suppose it was baby steps, uh, little steps at a time, because I didn't want to change too much because radical change would have alienated so many of our, you know, dear, loyal guests. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, ultimately I, I was brought up on that style of food anyway, which is a food that I love, uh, classic French. Um, but it was, in my view at the time, um, you know, rich, uh, too rich um, and too uh, calorie laden, too much cream and butter. Is there such a thing, Michelle? Like, is there such a thing as too much <laughs> cream and butter? <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I think so. I mean, it, it, it is great to indulge 
don't get me wrong, and, and Le Gavroche menu still has the, got those wonderful dishes, one of which, which I'm going to talk about in a second, uh, which is you know, the, the souffle suissesse. Um, and yes, you know, you do come to Le Gavroche to indulge and to have some you know, rich dishes. Uh, but but for me it was it was overly rich. The menu was overly laden with those rich dishes and and heavy and and the portion sizes were absolutely gargantuan. I mean the tasting menu of eight courses and then for main course you would have a chicken for two and you were expected to eat a lot. <laughs> oh wow! It. It, 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 yeah, it was bonkers, <laughs> absolutely bonkers. We don't eat that way anymore. Um, and uh, yeah, so so I had to change it slowly but surely. But there was one dish, and there still is one dish that is still on the menu and has been since 1967, um, and that is the souffle suissesse. I did try to take it off the menu once, and it was just not worth it. No. People were, were in arms saying, "Why are you going to cheese souffle off? You can't take it off. It has to be back on." And so I relented and put it back on. Um, I am honestly. Every day, every time I see it, I am sick. No, Michelle. <laughs> However, I do indulge in one every now and then, and I go, "Yeah, okay, I understand. It is pretty special." Um, it, it, but it is a cheese souffle uh, laden with cheese on top and cooked on double cream. It's extremely indulgent, but it is absolutely delicious. And you know, I understand why people you know, will come back time and time again for that little moment of indulgence. Uh, and it's still on the menu now, and we still, you know, sell about, oh gosh, I would say every night, probably about 40 or 50 cheese souffle. Wow. It's it's as popular as ever. I'm not surprised. So Le Gavroche was, it was the first UK restaurant to be awarded a Michelin star in 1974. And then it was the first to win a second in 1977. <clears throat> And then it was the first to win three. It's also the kitchen that has trained the likes of Marco Pierre White, Gordon Ramsay, Bryn Williams, and of course, Monica Galletti. What do you think, if you if you had to sort of wrap it up in a nutshell, what has been the secret formula to this incredible success? I think it's uh, the fact that we haven't really moved uh, away from uh, the great French classics. Um, we've lightened up the menu, obviously, and then there are different techniques uh, of cooking, etc. But we're true to our roots, um, and we, we uphold the great skills of you know French cooking. Um, so we get a you know young chefs that want to find out what French gastronomy is all about um, and the skills involved. So, you know, we, we will buy in whole lamb, for example, and butcher it ourselves. We buy whole fish and fillet it and portion it ourselves uh, rather than buying cuts that are ready to cook. Um, and we make all our own stocks and our own sauces and our own reductions and so on and so forth. So it's classic techniques that are being taught um, and, and I think that's it. that's important and we uphold that. And I think that's part of our success. I'm very excited to hear your answer to the next question, which is the, the fourth <laughs> desert island dish. What is your favourite sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> uh, favourite sandwich? Well, it's going to have to be le jambon beurre. Uh, yeah, ham and butter. Uh, and it has to be in a baguette. So the baguette has to be really, really crisp and well, freshly cooked. Uh, freshly cooked on the outside, so it's lovely and crisp on the outside, and that lovely, fluffy white inside. Uh, good salted butter, proper 
proper hand, so not you know pressed shoulder or amalgamated you know stuff. That's no, it, it has to be proper hand from the leg meat and cooked well um, and cut not too thin. It has to be quite thick uh, and layered, not just one slice. You know, lots of slices. And I don't actually like gherkins or cheese. It's just got to be quality butter, quality ham, and good bread. Uh, and you just can't go wrong with it. It's ubiquitous. It's it's you know it is le jambon beurre. It's the it's the sandwich par excellence. You can't go wrong with it. I, I'm fully with you there. You absolutely can't go wrong with it. That's a very good choice. Not that there are ever any wrong answers on that question, but. <laughs> <laughs> One of your first forays into the world of television was as a guest on MasterChef when Lloyd Grossman was hosting it. And then you returned as a guest before the idea of MasterChef The Professionals was developed. Television, obviously, is an amazing tool for sort of getting your name out there. But were you ever worried about getting pigeonholed into into a TV chef? Oh, yes, very much. I was very conscious about that uh, and not wanting to to be that you know, sort of uh, celebrity chef uh, stroke, yeah, TV chef. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, that was quite scared of that. In fact, it, I think it dawned on me one day when I realised that was on three shows on the telly on the same time. I was, I was like, yeah, this is just wrong, wrong. Um, I think, don't get me wrong, I love the television work that I do, absolutely adore it, and, you know, um, and uh, it, 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 you know, being in the media is 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 important for businesses, um, and uh, so yeah, I, I still do TV work and and really enjoy doing it, um, but I don't want to be known for my TV work. Uh, I want to be known for um, my day job, which is running a restaurant and being in the kitchens, because I still spend the vast majority of my time in the kitchen. Yeah, I suppose it's just important to be clear at the outset of sort of what you're hoping to achieve. Like, do you want to just be a celebrity or sort of, mm. you know, is it part of something wider? And obviously, everybody knows that it's part of something wider for you. Did life change after that sort of first MasterChef Professionals came out? It sort of catapulted you to become this household name. Were you suddenly getting recognised in the street? Yes, absolutely. And um Thankfully, my wife was there to, um, yeah, make sure that my feet were well and truly, you know, on, on the ground. And it didn't certainly didn't go to my head. Absolutely not. Um, and um, it, it, it is nice. Uh, don't get me wrong. For, for you know, people come up to you and, and, you know, in a polite manner and ask for an autograph or a photo. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's that's very nice. Um, but. You know, I, as I said from the offset, I want to be known for running a great restaurant, Le Gavroche, running, uh, you know, restaurants elsewhere, like at the Langham Hotel in London uh, and, you know, places in Scotland that, I, that I'm involved in and any other big events that we, you know, that we cook for. So, you know, that that's ultimately I want to be known for the food on the plate and for, for being a chef. Not necessarily for you know my TV programs, although as I said before, I thoroughly enjoy doing that. The, the part that I really enjoy about you know the media and the TV work is if it's going to inspire the next generation of chefs, or if it's going to um, inspire somebody to cook at home. That's that's wonderful. You know that's that's boxes ticked because that's important as well. 
uh, and to break barriers as well. You know, to break barriers of being scared to cook at home or not understanding ingredients or things like that. But that's important to me. Time now for the fifth desert island dish, and that is the dish you eat the most often. <laughs> Gosh, that, that's a difficult one, you know. I mean, the dish I, the dish I eat most often. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think the, the ingredient I eat most often would probably be bread, because um, okay. I'm, I'm typically <laughs> French. I eat bread with every meal, um, and, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and, and in between. But the one, I suppose the one, the one dish that as a family we always always cook together and always enjoy that every actually every member of our family loves offal um oh really oh gosh yeah we're huge huge offal fans we we love offal um and it's it's something that it's it's something that brings us all together so you know whether my daughter i mean my daughter loves tripe uh, absolutely adores tripe um and we were talked about tripe sausage earlier but uh, you know as a and dad bless him loved tripe as a little anecdote um before he passed away uh, during uh, one of the the breaks in lockdown when we were allowed out i went to brixton market and bought some honeycomb tripe because brixton market you can buy tripe easily there's loads there and i and i braised some slow cooked some tripe for him and for, for me and my wife and, and the daughter, because you know it's a dish that we particularly love, and um, and took it over to him in his flat, uh, uh, and uh, said, "Dad, I've cooked something really special for you." And I opened it up, this little Tupperware, and his eyes lit up. He was, he was in bed, and his eyes lit up. And, oh, wow, we got tripe for dinner, um, and uh, yeah, um, it's you know, that, that was that was a special moment. Uh, you know, it, it's it, yeah, it really special. So awful and. You know, I've got offal in the freezer. I've got sweetbreads and tongue in the freezer. Um, and, you know, we were talking with my wife uh, the other day saying, oh, we really must get this out of the freezer. We're going to eat it. Uh, so it, it's something that we, that we, that brings us all together as a family. And I, I, you know, I champion offal. I think it's something that we should eat more of. If we're taking the life of an animal, then we should eat every morsel of it um, and respect, you know, respect the animal for, for you know, giving its life or, or for us taking its life. Uh, so, you know, I think it's important and, uh, no, it, it's, it's delicious and nutritious. Yeah. <laughs> You've sold me. You sold me on it, Michelle. <laughs> I'm going, you know, and yet people do turn their noses up to it, but it, it's interesting that if you, if you, uh, a tongue, for example, veal tongue or beef tongue, uh, if it's cooked properly and sliced thinly and, uh, you know, you, you put it in a sandwich and you say, well, if it's a cold meat sandwich, people eat it and would love it and say, but if you tell them afterwards, it's tongue, they go, mm, what? You know, but it was delicious. You know, it, it's, it's perceptions as well. Mm. And I think it's, it's, it's fashions, isn't it? For some reason, offal has kind of fallen out of fashion, but like all these things, I'm sure it will come back round again. Mm. Um, especially with someone like you championing it, Michelle. Yes. <laughs> the new TV series sounds absolutely gorgeous. It's a trip through the south of France. You take us along to Ardèche where you go each summer and you show us the sort of food that you love to eat when relaxing on holiday. I mean, that must have been a lot of fun to film. Oh, my word, it was, yes. And the weather was with us. It was bright, you know, bright sunshine, blue sky. Uh, it was a little bit too hot at times because the pastry was... Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> pastry was melting in my hands. It was very difficult to, to line the. Someone's got to do it, though, haven't they? It's a tough job. It's a tough job, <laughs> but it was great. No, it was really great, and um, it was it was wonderful to be able to cook and um, food that I genuinely do cook at home, uh, and very very simple French country cooking. Delicious, based on seasonal ingredients um, and nothing fancy, which, you know, is what French food is at its very heart. Um, you know, people think, oh, French food is all, you know, very difficult, complex recipes and all fancy stuff. Um, well, actually, at its very heart, French cooking is is simple, seasonal-led ingredients. Um, and that's, that's, you know, what this show is all about. Mm. And, and when you're on holiday something that occurred to me are you are you good at being cooked by by other people or are you always the one wanting to do the cooking i tend to do the cooking whether i'm on holiday or not <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> i'm the chef after all um unless <laughs> unless my daughter's about or my son-in-law uh then, then they will take over or we you know we, we do it together uh, in fact christmas is fun i tell you when, when we're all together or when when dad was about as well when we had like three generations of, of, of ruse arguing over over christmas lunch that was great fun but um uh, yeah but uh, no it's uh it, it is good it, you know it's uh it is wonderful and um uh to but I, I do cook. And yeah, genuinely, I, I, I cook all the time, uh, even when I'm on holiday. And this is just the sort of show that I love watching anyway. But I think given the last 18 months or so, we're all looking for some escapism and travel. You know, it's been so hard for people. So this just sounds like it's come at the perfect time. I mean, what better way to travel the world than through food? I think so, too. And, and you can travel the world with food. In fact, I've been fortunate enough to travel the world. Um, and uh, hopefully there will be more traveling once once everything settles. Um, but to, to to go and find, you know, what the locals eat and to to find that little gem of a restaurant in a side street or whatever, I think is, is half the fun of travel, all the fun of traveling, I think. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So wh when did you actually film this? Was it was it filmed pre-COVID? So this was filmed, um, you know, we had a window of opportunity during the summer um, to, to you know, fly out all the crew and everybody uh, uh, out there. And the first 10 days in this house, we, we were a bubble. We didn't go out and nobody came in to see us. Uh, and we filmed the cooking part, all the recipes. We had all the food delivered. And then after the 10 days, once we quarantined and tested and tested, uh, we were allowed out. And then we could venture out into the markets and, uh, and to see the suppliers. So it was a great way to film, actually. And um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it, it, it was, it was fabulous. And like I said, we had the, we had this wonderful weather, which helped, obviously, with the wonderful sceneries of lavender fields and olive groves and the, the gorgeous mountains up in the, the valleys of the, uh, the Yardesh. And, and, ah, yeah, it was splendid. It, it's obviously somewhere very close to your heart. And, and something I always wonder when I'm watching programs like this, do you ever have any reservations about sharing these amazing places in case they suddenly become very popular? <laughs> um, <laughs> very selfish question, I know. Yeah, yes and no. Um, I mean, yeah, we, we highlight one particular restaurant, actually, or a bistro. Uh, which is a, a real favourite of mine. And, and, and yeah, I am a little bit worried that I will never <laughs> be able to get a table there again. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to remind them who you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the owner of the place, uh, Franck, uh, is is just 
yeah, he, he's what hospitality is all about. You know, he, he just wraps his arm around every single guest there. And, uh, you know, just, just, it, it's just the joy of, of eating and sharing food and a moment, uh, you know, a glass or two of wine. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's just perfection. Let's talk now about the sixth desert island dish, and that is your go-to dinner party dish. I don't do dinner parties. I mean, that doesn't surprise <laughs> me. When would you have time? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I very, very, very rarely do I invite people or friends, you know, or anybody to my flat here in London for, for dinner. Uh, and surprisingly enough, I very rarely get invited to other people. Oh, no! <laughs> so it's a two-way... Too scary. Yeah, it's a two-way street, I suppose, isn't it? Um, but, um, no, I mean, I, it, I suppose when I'm on holiday in France, yes. Uh, but here in London, no, because, um, well, number one, I don't really have time. Uh, and, and secondly, when I have a night off, then um, it, invariably we go out for dinner or I'll just cook uh, something for myself and my wife. Because, um, uh, yeah, I'm in work mode, so I don't really have that much time. But when, when I'm on holiday in France, I have a lot more time. But it's normally, again, very, very simple French food. So go to would be uh, if it's in the summer, it's something on the barbecue. So I, you know, I love cooking outdoors. And so, you know, whole fish, for example, it's a bit tricky, but it's well worth doing whole fish on the barbecue. Um, I mean, last summer I cooked a whole sea bass that I'd stuffed with um, some rice, uh, sticky rice, Creole kind of cooked rice with a little bit of coconut milk and uh, ginger. And I'd wrapped it in a banana leaf and just slow cooked it on the uh, on the barbecue. Now, that that was just exquisite. I mean, that that, that was so good. And that was for... Um, that was for the neighbours, actually, um, my house in, in France, because I, I always treat the neighbours and uh, treat the locals as well, invite invite my friends around for a treat. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's dishes like that. It's sharing dishes. And that's what I love about cooking, say, you know, a whole fish or big joints of meat, like a whole leg of lamb or things like that. And because it's sharing. So you bring that whole dish to the table and you carve it in front of them or you or you share it out in front of them and that's conviviality and it's loving and it's sharing mm. all i can say is lucky neighbors <laughs> i think they're going to be a lot of people sort of desperately on right move trying to figure out <laughs> where, where they can buy to become a neighbor of yours michelle <laughs> on desert island dishes we have a cookbook corner so i'd love to know what your most treasured cookbook is <gasps> that's actually not an easy question because I've got a collection of hundreds and hundreds of cookbooks. Um, gosh, um, I, I love collecting cookbooks, uh, and I've got cookbooks dating back, you know, a couple of hundreds of years, all the way up to the most recent cookbooks. But I will go for one, and one which um, I think every aspiring chef should have. Escoffier's. Uh, first book, which was published in uh, 1902, if I'm correct, or I might be a couple of years out, but I think the first edition was 1902, Escoffier, uh, and it's his tome to French gastronomy, whereby he lists every technique and every recipe uh, and goes into great detail. 
of how it's cooked and uh, how to use that recipe and how to use every ingredient in that recipe. So it's um, it's it's a repertoire and it's a go-to reference book on the same time. Now, some of the recipes are still relevant now and others are not. Uh, and by that I mean that you know they, they might be they might use a lot of flour uh, to thicken sauces and such like. But if you use that as a guide and as a reference point, uh, you know, as a as a professional chef, you can then work from that, and you can then use that as a as I said as a uh, uh, an integral part of your repertoire. Mm. Michelle, I can't believe it, but we're on to the seventh and final desert island dish. And that is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. (laughs) (laughs) My last request. (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, Gosh, well, actually, it's it's quite simple. I love seafood. Um, So I would go for a, a lobster uh, this is quite appropriate on a desert island, isn't it? Uh, a lobster that would be uh, simply smothered in garlic butter uh, and grilled over hot coals. So you've got this lovely smoky uh, flavour from the from the hot coals and this lovely sweet pungent garlic and of course butter. Uh, so roast roast lobster with garlic butter, um, and I would accompany that with chips, but not any old chips, big fat chips, proper chips, and cooked in duck fat and liberally sprinkled with good quality salt. So, you know, something like Malden sea salt. Um, And on the side, a great big sauce boat of Bernays sauce. Oh, oh my goodness. Dip dip my chips in, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And would you have a pudding? Uh, who needs a pudding when you've got that? <laughs> um, no, You're no, going to I, a desert island, Michelle. I, I, yeah, I would have <laughs> a bottle of vintage champagne to wash it down with. <laughs> That's an excellent choice. Are you coming with me? Uh, yes, please. <laughs> when when are we sending you off to this island? We need to make this happen now. Michelle yeah. Rue, those were your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really does make such a difference. It boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find out about it, which is great and means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, then come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at desertislanddishes.co. Thank you again to our sponsor, Cook's Matches, and I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. So fun to be back. Bye.